The following episode of the 9pm edict contains science, spacecraft, and gravity. I don't trust Jupiter. Friday the 22nd of December 2023. It's the solstice. Hurrah! So it's time for a look at the year in space. All right, I'll calm down. My special guests today are space archaeologist Dr. Alice Gorman, aka Dr. Space Junk from Flinders University, and astrophysicist Rami Mandau, who's also the founder of SpaceAustralia.com. In this episode, we discuss the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, probably. It would have thrown bits of Earth off with enough energy that they could have reached the moons of Jupiter. We talk about pulsars. When I mean dense, they're extremely, extremely dense. Inevitably, we talk about that man. If we're being totally honest here, when, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to him later on because he's a dick. And we look back at why our view of the universe is getting so weird. It kind of set in with Copernicus about 500 years ago. And much more. Hello, I'm Still Gerian. This is the 9pm Purpose of Space and the Gravity of the Situation with Alice Gorman and Remy Mandel. With me today is the wonderful Dr. Alice Gorman, a.k.a. Dr. Space Junk herself. Good day to you, Alice. Good day still. And astrophysicist Rami Mandel is grinning at the very prospect of talking about space. Hi, Rami. Hey, still. How are you doing? Very well, uh, now that I'm speaking with you two. Now, I want to start off. There's so many things that have happened in space this year, but I want to start off, uh, and I think Rami will will have chosen this topic. Uh, here's a distinctly American news story from 60 Minutes. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope has hardly opened its eyes, and the universe is new, more mysterious, more beautiful than humanity's dreams. The largest telescope ever flown launched into deep space on Christmas Day 2021, its primary mission is to reveal the let there be light moment when the stars and galaxies first ignited after the Big Bang. Putting aside let there be light, which I consider to be a religious question and not a scientific question and, and each to their own in that regard, science is about what's happening and how. The why is someone else's department, in my view. What have we discovered so far, apart from some very pretty pictures? Uh, yeah, look, it's, I mean, the JWST is an amazing beast of a telescope. It is uh, obviously, you know, living very far away from us at the moment. It's about a million kilometres away out in orbit um, between a, pl a special place called the L2 point. And it's doing a wonderful job in returning some of the, uh, some of the insight into the universe that we never actually even considered in the first place, let alone... Uh, you know, have now got firm evidence for. And it's, it doesn't, it's looking from everywhere, from like within our solar system all the way out back to like almost some of the earliest, earliest events and earliest uh, objects that we can see in the distant universe, which is incredible. So what are some of those discoveries? 
I mean, look, there's you can you can sort of put them in different categories. There's cosmology, there's uh, there's exoplanets, there's our own solar system, there's supernovas, there's uh, different aspects of elements. And a, a great example is, um, you know, we look. It's actually looked at a. It's actually found a supermassive black hole at the almost edge of the universe at thirteen point two billion light years away. So thirteen point two billion years old. Now that's incredible because. Supermassive black holes are, you know, massive, massive black holes that have been accumulating smaller black holes over time. But this supermassive black hole exists when the universe is only three percent of its age. So it's not even. Uh, it's a very young universe where the, where we found a supermassive black hole to be. And so now that raises questions with our scientists going, well, how did it have time to accrete all those other black holes to form a supermassive black hole when it was only three percent of the universe old? So. It's kind of defying our, our our understanding of how the universe evolved and especially how galaxies evolved as well. As a kid, I was fascinated with black holes, and I bet Alice was too, and she's put her hand up. She has something to say. I, I'm not sure about the status of this, but I saw a news story in passing recently which said there was a mistake in the mathematics that proved that black holes existed and maybe they don't exist at all. I don't even understand it. <laughs> okay. I feel, I feel I ought to mention it. Rami, you're nodding at this. Have we got it all wrong? Well, we don't know. I mean, like, we black <laughs> holes are we, – we, no, we, actually, I shouldn't say that. We, we know that black holes exist because we can see observational evidence for them. Like, we see uh, stellar mass black holes, for example, and even supermassive black holes in the heart of galaxies like the Milky Way. And we don't actually see the black hole itself unless you have a very big telescope to take an image of the black hole. And we've done that for our own galaxy and another galaxy called M87. So we've got – direct images of black holes and there's only two of those images so far that we can uh, observe but we also have indirect evidence so for example the supermassive black hole in the heart of our galaxy has a bunch of stars they're called s stars that orbit quite close to it um, and we don't see the black hole itself but we see these stars and they're being pulled at significant speeds around this supermassive black hole and from that from the speeds of the, the velocity we can actually work out and infer the mass of the object that's creating the gravity to create that pull on them. And when we do that calculation, we see that in this tiny space, there's something like 4.3 million suns. And the only way you can explain that uh, with physics is uh, a black hole. So there is evidence of them there. It's indirect and some of, um, some direct evidence. Uh, but when it comes down to figuring out what's inside a black hole, which is what I think is Alice is referring to, um, we don't know. Like we, There's just no physics that can explain anything beyond the event horizons of these objects. So my understanding of black holes, which is admittedly very old, um, is is that they were formed by collapsing of stars and stuff and then they grow because more stuff falls in them. Is the question here, if, if the universe is only 3% of its age at that point, which is admittedly quite a long time for you and I, there wouldn't have been enough stars to fall in, or there's others. Oh, okay, head shaking time. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's it's, it's still a mystery. There could be uh, different methods of these how these supermassive black holes form. So um, there's two theories, or there kind of was two theories, in that said there was like a top down approach or a bottom up approach. And the bottom up approach is basically you know smaller black holes coalesce and form sort of mid range black holes, and they coalesce and form bigger black holes, and eventually they accrete upwards to. Super 
super massive uh, masses. But there's also another theory that says that at the very early universe, because there was lots of hydrogen and helium gas around, that these masses of hydrogen and helium could have directly collapsed into the supermassive black hole. So un, uh, foregoing that star formation stage and then turning to black holes, these gases could have just eventually collapsed inwards and formed these supermassive black holes, or at least massive black holes that then started accreting the smaller black holes over time. And that could be a f- mechanism to get them to build up so quickly in size and mass at such an early stage as well. Alice, the black hole must have a, a huge cultural impact to our view of ourselves and space now, right? You mentioned before, still, like people love black holes. There's something ah. really compelling about. I'm not sure what it is. Is it because they're so mysterious? Uh, we, sit, as Rami said, we we don't know what happens inside them. Uh, is it because they're uh, uncertain? Like we could be swallowed up by a black hole at any minute? Uh, is it because they represent the dark side? I mean, they're called black holes. Like they represent mm. some dark power and we've got dark matter and dark energy all of this darkness out there in our solar system and there's some great cultural representations of black holes the film interstellar had a particularly good one which i think was based on some fairly um solid sort of science rami's saying that's that's true but it's really hard like even little kids love a black hole and Mm. maybe more so than a star and I'm not really sure what that's about, but it's definitely a cultural phenomenon. It, it's got to be the the mystery. I mean, stars we can see, right? There it is. You know, I can go out tonight and look at stars, and I don't really understand them, and no one, you know, all of that. But they're there. Black hole, yeah. It's 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 not, and the very fact that by definition, our physics don't work in them. And I think there's that possibility, which I think. We have no proof of, but because we have no proof of it, the idea that the black hole, if you got sucked inside one, it would lead you mm. to another universe. It would lead you to another brain in the multiverse. It would le- it'd be the wormhole that take that makes faster than light travel possible. I, mean, I don't if, know. If, 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 you, if you could survive it, yeah. But, I mean, there are, <laughs> there, there are many, many things that will kill you before you get to that point. I mean, there, the movie Interstellar was great. As you said, Alice, there was um, uh, some really – good scientific work that went into it. There was a little bit of uh, creative direction put in by Christopher Nolan and his team. But uh, the scientist that worked on uh, Interstellar was Professor Kip Thorne, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago for the discovery of gravitational waves. So he knows his stuff. And he, re- he was actually the science advisor on on Interstellar. Um, Kip, but you mean, Thorne. I mean, like- Kip Thorne. Kip Thorne. He sounds like he should be an astronaut, though, isn't it? Landing <laughs> He's got that first name. human on Mars is Kip Thorne. Yeah, he's got, he's got that typical name, the typical um, American astronaut name. But, I mean, like, you know, black holes also have, um, and we saw this in Interstellar, but they have, like, for example, this rotating disk of matter around them called an accretion disk. And that's just, like, the matter that's falling in towards a black hole and it gets spaghettified and, and as it gets closer and closer, it, sp- it rotates faster, orbits faster and faster, and the particles start smashing into each other so much that the friction gets so hot, they produce X-rays and high-energy radiation that if you got even close to a black hole with an accretion disk, the the high-energy radiation will vaporize you even before you could even fall in and become spaghettified in the first place. So you just become a a stream of electrons and particles by the time you got there yourself. (laughs) That's very sad. That's very sad. I mean, it takes all the fun out of black holes, doesn't it? (laughs) 
Uh, but we had some other discoveries. Um, Osiris Rex, which is a fantastic name for a sample uh, for a sampling spacecraft. Now that's the Bennu asteroid, Alex. Yes, that's right. And Bennu is a particularly interesting asteroid. So we had some data about it before, which is one of the reasons it was chosen for this mission. And it appears that the parent body the asteroid was once part of had running water on it. Wow. So this is gives you a vision of, of, of you know, a, a sort of a bigger, um, I don't know, just a much bigger asteroid at the past which might have had little rivers and lakes. And, of course, what gets people so excited about this is that if you find water, you're more likely to find evidence of life or what they call prebiotic molecules. There's a bunch of those all over the solar system. And indeed, the first uh, early analyses of the sample that um, the mission returned to Earth from asteroid Bennu show that there are lots of hydrocarbons, these same prebiotic molecules. And there's a really interesting... um, story here, which I, I'd love to get Rami's perspective on as well. So there's a theory that a life on Earth was kind of seeded by these these complex molecules that are, we, we know they're all over the place, asteroids, comets, whatever, this, they're everywhere. This this is this theory which I think has the quite dreadful name panspermia. Ah. <laughs> I know, it sounds like a very <laughs> bad actress and bishop joke at some level. Yeah. Um, it's a very unpopular theory. So it was. Um, oh, okay. It wasn't originated by Fred Hoyle and Chandra Wickramasinghe, Singh, but they were the ones who kind of started publishing about it in a scientific context. And they were. We're talking were very, in the 1950s here, I think, aren't we? Uh, 50s through to 70s. And he's, yeah. he's okay. still publishing about it, Wickramasinghe. Um, and so it was mocked a lot and, and said there's no evidence for it, da, da, da. it's not a popular theory. However, this is what's behind all of these missions looking for the prebiotic molecules. So they won't ever say panspermia, but effectively this is the theory that is is um, being addressed by looking for these molecules. So I just find this a really interesting little paradox, I guess. Mm, I should say that the idea is basically that because there are these prebiotic molecules found all over the place, that it doesn't take much to then go to the next step to something that replicates. And, of course, as soon as something replicates, bang, off it goes. Yes, uh, I mean, I mean, it, I, I actually think it does take a lot to get to that next step. It's, uh, I think there's the molecules exist um, everywhere in the universe. And, and speaking of JWST, one of, uh, one of its most wonderful findings um, not too long, a couple of months ago, was um, it not only not only do we see these molecules in our solar system, but JWST actually found organic molecules uh, in a galaxy twelve billion light years away. So that's actually saying that this is this is very well spread across the universe and the history of the universe as well. Just um, to uh, get that perspective in my head, twelve billion light years, because as soon as you start saying billions and trillions, you, you, your brain melts. So yeah. twelve billion light years is kind of how far out. The distance compared to the edge of the universe, yeah, the distance probably the, doesn't have an edge. We'll just keep going round and round. That's right, and we live inside an observable universe, so it's probably even extends beyond that anyway. Okay, so but so twelve billion is it's it's we know. don't we, we in terms of distance, we don't actually describe the actual physical distance because uh, 
the universe is expanding and has been expanding for the last 12, or sorry, 13.7 billion years. So if I said to you it was it was 90 billion light years away uh, when the light left us, by then it actually has actually expanded further and further. And so that number is a little bit harder to describe. But when we say 12 billion, what we're talking about is 12 billion years in the past. From like 12 billion years ago, there were organic right. complex molecules that were actually existing in a galaxy 12 billion light years away um, since that light left us. And so... If we know that these, if these organic uh, uh, products, I guess, elements actually exist elsewhere in the universe, then there is a chance that the right conditions like here on Earth have actually emerged. Statistically, there should be many chances, actually. And uh, life has emerged in those places as well. Uh, but the trigger for life itself, for, for that replication and for those cells to form, is extremely hard. And I think there's been some experiments and Alice, I think you might remember the name, but of the Mills something experiment where they actually had like the gases and molecules and, and stuff inside the actual chamber and they fired like pretend lightning bolt into it to try to see if life would actually start up. And I don't think they ever got a conclusive result from that. It was called the Miller-Urey experiment, Miller-U-R-E-Y experiment. We will, of course, dear listener, link to all of these things on the podcast website, as we always do. So many links, 30-odd links per episode usually. Lots of things to look at. I feel we ought to say with Bennu, the sample container had the lid so tightly screwed on that they couldn't get it off. And they managed to, <laughs> they managed to get part of it off and extract about seventy grams of the sample inside, which is already far more than we've ever got from mm. any other asteroid. But mm. it's going to NASA has to make a special screwdriver to try and get the other screws out. And there's oh, so, possibly... so it's, not, it's, it's not open yet. I thought they opened it completely. No, no, apparently oh, wow. not. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Because <laughs> the tricky thing is the screwdriver they make has to be sufficiently different from what they might find inside to, to not contaminate it. Uh, and they're right. expecting there could be 30 to 70 grams more sample once they get the lid fully off. I do find that somewhat amusing. <laughs> that's incredible, yeah. yeah. Maybe there's an alien inside holding the lid shut. <laughs> yeah. Leave me yeah. alone! <laughs> It is kind of cool when you think about like the fact that we have gone out there and brought back samples of asteroids that uh, and back here to Earth to analyze and, and not just analyze as one country but share that for share those um, share those samples around to many countries and have every lots of scientists looking at them as well and those and those samples are wonderful because they are representative of the pristine and the primordial uh, solar nebula like they're the stuff that hasn't undergone you know, on Earth or other planets, you know, when the rocks form and they come together, they sort of undergo erosion or effects of differentiation. This stuff is like the the raw stuff from the original solar nebula. And that tells us a lot about the formation of our, our solar system and what was here before us and how the sun formed and all that stuff, which is really fascinating. Well, I'm going to change the, the subject now and we'll move on to something I know is very much Alice's favourite. India's Chandrayaan-3 moon mission has already proven historic. It put India in the history books for being the fourth nation to ever successfully land a spacecraft on the moon and the very first to ever land at its south pole. The lander Vikram and the rover Pragyan 
already made discoveries that could profoundly impact our understanding of the moon's chemical composition and geological history, and has given the world vital data that will aid future return missions to our lunar neighbor. And yet, for all the praise, which is well-deserved, it's what Chandrayaan-3 did not discover, but should have, that I find the most intriguing. Yes, 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 enough of all that drama, mate. It's water. It's water he's talking about, folks. Uh, but first, Alice, the Chandrayaan-3 moon mission from the Indian uh, Space Research Organization, ISRO. Tell me more. Oh, there's so much to love about this mission. So the first thing is that the moon is very much dominated by the US and USSR Russia, Mm-hmm. And it makes me really happy that we have um, more diverse nations represented on the moon. Of course, India's had past lunar missions. This isn't their their first rodeo. But I love that they're demonstrating um, a, a sort of a, a non-former um, Cold War power <laughs> axis um, capability. Um, and I think it's really important to have that diversity on the moon. Uh, I the, was about the, to say too, the another Cold War nation, China, uh, was the third to get something on the moon uh, with their one that went to the other side, the dark side. That was the Jade Rabbit, wasn't it? Uh, that was Chang'e 3 or 4 on the dark side with the Jade Rabbit uh, rover. So mm. very cute mission, doing some great work. Um, so some of the other things that are fantastic about uh, the Chang'e 3 mission so when the lander, so it's three components. It has um, the propulsion unit, which took the lander and the rover to the moon, then the lander and the rover. So the lander, Vikram, when it touched down safely on the surface of the moon, it did a little hop to move its location. It hopped itself up and settled in a new location. That's, that's you know, that's pretty amazing. That's very cute. Yeah. And then little Pragyan, the rover, trundled out and started gathering data. And it was, I think it's about 26 kilos, so it's sort of like half a person's worth. So collected all this amazing data. And then, oh, and the propulsion unit I mentioned before did something really interesting too. It went back to Earth. It's currently orbiting around Earth. Wow. So so this is sort of demonstrating Um, technology for like sample return, reusability, stuff like that. So this is pretty interesting. But the the thing that then happens is lunar, the lunar day is two weeks long and that's like, no, it's four weeks long, which is two weeks of sunlight and two weeks of darkness. It's a very long day and everything's fine when the sun is up. Mm -hmm. But when lunar night falls, it becomes extremely cold and unless you have night-proofed your spacecraft, there's a lot of uncertainty and doubt about whether they will survive the lunar night. And the rover and the lander were put to sleep, but they didn't actually have anything to keep them heated. They had no wow. nuclear um, power, radioisotopic uh, thermal generators, which... Um, Mm. The Apollo missions had, for example. So that's like nuclear stuff on the moon, bad, keeping a very expensive spacecraft alive, good. You have to sort of balance those things. Anyway, they didn't have them and the two weeks of lunar night went by and and then everybody's like, can we wake them up? Will they still work? And couldn't wake them up, so they died during the night. 
in um, sort of end of September-ish. They, they died. And yeah, yeah, I yeah. August was the so landing, sad. so yeah. Yeah, yeah. So two little dead spacecraft on the, uh, near the lunar south pole. You want to go and have a look at them, don't you, Alice? I want to go and give them a cuddle. Because they're sort of, you know, all alone. <laughs> Keep them and, warm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the water thing. What do we know about the water thing? That that chap from, um, I'll, look, I'll link to his thing. It's actually a space news channel done by a YouTuber with 1.7 million subscribers. Uh, mm. But mm. Oh, that was such a, an annoying bit. I've got an even more annoying bit later uh, for you to listen to. <laughs> but uh, the water because we're all expecting water to be there in the shadows of the craters near the poles of the moon. Didn't find it initially. Who has a you comment know, about that? It's a small sample. Like we're, we're yeah. expecting a lot from uh, very uh, very small areas mm. and limited capacities. So mm. that's part of it for me. Uh, and the other thing is, it shows us how much we do not know about water cycles on the moon. And I think this is critical because everybody wants to go to the South Pole because there are um, deep lakes of water ice in the permanently shadowed regions. And this isn't where... We know that for sure, do we? We do do. know that for sure. Um, We also know around the equatorial regions that little tiny, um, little tiny, I don't know what you call them, little little globules of water ice form and dissolve over the lunar day and night period. Okay. So there, there, is, there are actual water cycles on the moon that we don't understand. And I think the expectation was like the closer you get to the actual lunar south, the geographic lunar south pole, like the more water you ought to get. So for me, this really demonstrates that we do not know what we're messing with by sending all of these missions up there to try and get at that water ice. Rami, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, there's um, there's definitely evidence for world water in the south, in the more direct South Pole area. So the craters of the South Pole, the way that the moon sort of tilted and the way that it sort of orbits and turns on its axis, uh, there's parts of some craters um, which never actually get sunlight on them at all. So effectively, uh, the water in there has been confirmed by orbiting uh, spacecraft which bounces radar off, off of the surface and it can tell what's water and what's rocks. And so uh, they can. there's definitely lots of storage water down there. But And this is the thing, right? This is what everyone's competing for because someone wants to plant a flag on that region because that's a massive resource of... Um, you know, that's going to be capable or, or develop capabilities in the future and be it a landing port, be it uh, fuel, be it uh, oxygen, be it uh, regolith mixing to actually create uh, structures on the moon. All that water down there is literally a very important resource to whoever claims it. But there are obviously treaties and things that Alice knows much more about, about claiming things on the moon and, you know, how that all works is it beyond me. Um But I believe that this Indian lander, you're right, Alice, I don't think it got to that South Pole region. I think it was a few... A little bit higher latitude, um, but the, even at the higher latitudes, they were expecting more, and they didn't find it, which was a surprise to me as well. Well, I could say uh, Rami mentioned the treaties. So um, the interesting thing about all these plans to go and mine the water ice at the South Pole, which basically they want to use for all the stuff Rami said, but a big uh, component of that is making rocket fuel, so the moon can be used as a launching base to get to Mars. But the treaties, the the um, 
Outer Space Treaty of 1967, reinforced by the Moon Agreement, later Moon Agreement, is that no one can claim territory in space. So no one can come along and say, this ice lake is mine, I'm getting all the water out of this. The controversial bit is who owns the material extracted from the surface of the moon. So in a strict interpretation of the Outer Space Treaty, no one can own that, no one can sell that, no one can use that for their private use. So this obviously does not make all of the private um, space corporations happy uh, and it doesn't make the US happy and a number of other (laughs) nations. So it's now accepted that it is okay. If you extract some resource from the moon, once you've actually separated it from that parent body, you are allowed to own it and dispose of it as you like. So this is kind of by... Implicit and explicit. Once you dig it up, it's no longer part of the moon. Oh, that's magical. That is kind of so the US and Luxembourg (laughs) and a couple of other nations have actually put legislation, national legislation into place to reinforce this, which in a way is meaningless because it doesn't negate the treaties. But the whole Mm. international space community, by agreement, is choosing to accept this interpretation. But also, I mean, also the other thing as well is like, if we're being totally honest here, when, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to him later on because he's a dick. But, um, but like, <laughs> but, but like, people, pe- 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 I, I don't know. I'm going to do my best to avoid talking about him. <laughs> but, but like, I mean, but people, people like Elon Musk and you know Jeff Bezos, oh, like, and, you said the and, word. and all no. those guys, like they, they just they just go and do things and apologize later. Like they're going to get there and they're going to dig it up yeah. and they're going to just say we did it and so we're sorry for doing it and. Let's just deal with now what we have. And guess what? We can provide all these benefits and everyone's going to be eyes glazed over going, wow, you actually did it. And, you know, that's how it's going to roll. And it's it's sad. It sucks. Because- It'll be exactly like that except the word sorry will not come from yeah, his true. lips. Yeah, <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> okay. We did it. We said it. I'm now going to move on. You've mentioned resources. I think there's another nation very close to us, like under our feet, uh, which is very good in resources. And and uh, this is now a news story which really, really annoys me. I'm going to play the grab and then anyway. Not so much one giant leap, more of a small, important step. Australia's first lunar rover to the moon now has a name. Now, I'm not going to say it. Which of you is going to say it? I'll close my ears. I, Ra- this is, I... Rami, let's do it on together on three. One. Okay, go. Two, three, Ruva. <laughs> I so hate it. It's We're now going ears. to get so many lines about one small hop for mankind, aren't we? <laughs> it's yeah. going to collect samples in its pouch. But you know what? To be honest, like I, I, I also don't think the name's great. But like, um, and I think I, I believe from memory, I can't remember the actual naming, but there was a really lovely indigenous name in there, which I, which is my preference and my vote as well. Kakira, which is um, Ghana language from my neck of the woods, so I like that. In too. South Australia, around Adelaide, where I'm yeah, actually from, a, Ghana. Yeah. So Ruva got thirty five percent, Kakira twenty six percent, Kulamon twenty five percent. And mateship thirteen percent. I don't know whether that adds up to a hundred. Someone else can do the things. There were eight thousand submissions from the public for names for the rover. And although oh, names of notable Australians also received multiple entries in the competition, Bert Moonface Newton, Steve oh. Irwin, Sam <laughs> Kerr, Red Dog, 
Red red dog. That's a fictional dog. Um, Mad Max and Blinky Bill. Uh, others, of course, uh, Matilda, Bluey, Skippy, Wombat, Walkabout, and Rover McRover Face. Obviously, uh, look. I mean, in a, in a way, like I, I mean, naming 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 anything in space or even telescopes or be it landmarks, etc., after people can be quite good and fun, but also can be quite. Uh, bad because in a way you know like there's people that we name things from the past and they turn out being bad people and we go oh what do we do with that naming now it creates issues uh in terms of the actual naming but yeah, Ruth, like but then Ruth, we Ruth, named them for the good bits that we knew about i don't, I don't let's not go down that rabbit hole but rivers like even though it wasn't my choice and even though it does annoy me um we kind of need it to be honest I'm, and i'm saying that in the aspect of there was recently a report that was put out um I'm going to say like a month ago, and it basically said that the Australian public is still not deeply engaged or engaged enough with the Australian space sector slash space industry or space like space uh, areas. And so maybe having something like Ruva will generate a lot more clickbaity headlines um, in the next five years, 10, 10 years, that will get people more engaged. So maybe we do need something that brings people to the table through clickbait or through whatever it may be. And it sucks that we have to rely on this, but... Sometimes we actually do need to go out and, uh, and 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 reach out to people and communicate with people in best ways that will grab their attention as well. Well, we are actually going to come to that very report a little later. Uh, let's move on, though. Let's take a break and do the housekeeping. Well, then... This is the housekeeping. And first, let me say uh, I was mispronouncing the name of the Indian Space Program. Uh, totally. During all of that, it's Chundrayaan. Chundrayaan. Chundrayaan 3 uh, is the name of the lunar mission. Now, two uh, episodes ago, we spoke with Dr. Trent, Dr. Trent Yarwood, our uh, team in. <laughs> our tethered infectious diseases physician about uh, sexually transmitted infections in Australia, especially among uh, Indigenous communities. Well, since we spoke, a new report has come out from the Kirby Institute and it's Look, I've linked to it. It's amazing. Australia has recorded the highest number of syphilis cases in a 10-year period. Uh, it also says that Overall, syphilis rates are more than five times higher in Indigenous people compared to non-Indigenous uh, Indigenous people. Uh, that's in 2022. Uh, the disease is, of course, more prevalent in remote areas as well. Now, I will say those rates are of people who have been tested as well. And as we discussed in that episode... An awful lot of young Indigenous people are simply not getting tested, which is uh, which is really quite bad. I've linked both to an ABC News report about it, but also to the the Kirby Institute uh, report in full. Uh, even as we said last time, I don't know whether we said this about chlamydia last time. Trent called chlamydia the king of STIs. I don't know that that's uh, a fabulous. Uh, title, uh, but most chlamydia goes undiagnosed because for many people it's asymptomatic, but it then gets passed on and, yeah, and then it's not necessarily asymptomatic for people. 
Iceland does terrible things. Uh, on a slightly happier note, uh, the next episode of this podcast uh, will be coming up uh, in about a week, just after Christmas with Snarky Platypus. We'll be looking back at the year... <laughs> the year in snark, I guess, just at all of the things that have happened there. If you are a supporter of this podcast with trigger words or a conversation topic uh, specifically for that episode, please get them to me by Tuesday. That's the 26th of December. Yes, that's right. Tuesday, the 26th of December at, uh, call it 11am Australian Eastern Daylight Time because we'll be recording in the afternoon. Uh, and uh, that episode will be out at the end of next week, probably on uh, probably on the Thursday, I think. And no, on the Friday, because on the Thursday, Thursday night is the nine p uh, the nine pm, the eight pm quiz of the year part two, the video live stream chat uh, quiz competition thing. Uh, that's. Thursday, the 28th of December at 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Go to my YouTube channel, set yourself a reminder. And if you miss part one, and if you're really, really bored on Christmas Day or some other time, uh, you can play back part one, answer the questions. Won't be quite the same without the live interaction in the chat, but it should still be amusing in some way. Uh, well, as you know, this podcast is uh, made possible by you, the generous listener. And for this summer series, it is a huge thank you to everyone who supported the uh, 9 p.m. Summer Series 2023 crowdfunding campaign. You're all listed on the website. You all have my very huge thanks. I want to particularly highlight uh, another set of uh, those people this time, and it's those who got a relatively new thing, a relatively new reward, a personalised message recorded by me. A personalised video message will go to Carl Oscar and a personalised audio message to Alyssa Harris, Jens Hartman, Karen Purser, Matthew Moylecroft, Sil Mobile, Warren McDonald and two people who choose to remain anonymous. Now, I suspect... Um, some of those people don't really want a message. They just wanted to choose that amount uh, to to pledge to support, and that's fine. That's fine too. Although I should say, if you are supporting a campaign on Possible, you can choose a reward, but then when you go to, to check out, you can just up the amount of money for it, or you can choose no reward in any amount, whatever you want. So uh, that's a thing. Also, uh, in the new year, I will be making those things available to anyone at any time. I'll I'll have a shop set up and you can buy that sort of thing. I don't know why you would want me to send a personalised video message to you. Well, perhaps to a, someone you like or someone you really hate. That could be fun. Um, and if you're a uh, what commercial voiceovers, I can do sensible stuff where I don't say words like fuck and cunt. And, uh, in fact, one of my first voiceover uh, things was way back when I was in my 20s and I narrated a training film for the dentistry school at the University of Adelaide and I didn't even see the pictures. I had a script and I can say, as you see on this molar here, the decay has uh, really taken quite a lot of effect here, here and, and here, except without stumbling 
I was just ad-libbing then. If you would like, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast. If you would like to join those generous people and make this podcast possible, make the quiz possible, make my life possible, make all the wonder and magic of the world possible and frothing over in delight, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That is the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Yes, that sound means, Alison Ramy, that it's time for some trigger words. Uh, as regular listeners to the podcast will know, this is the glass jar of transparency. It contains folded up pieces of paper. Each one contains a word bought by a supporter sent in in the hope that it will trigger a conversation. Unfold, unfold. <laughs> From Matt Arkell, we should have had this one earlier, the word is density. We've already Ooh. done black holes. What else? This doesn't necessarily have to relate to space, but if you've got density oh, there. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to resist myself and I'm going to have to go down the path of talking pulsars because Aye, pulsars are neutron thing, stars and neutron stars are some of the densest objects that we can actually uh, observe and measure in the universe. And uh, when I mean dense, they're, they're extremely, extremely dense. Like they're a single teaspoon of, you know, of a neutron star material would weigh as much as all of humanity combined. So crushing all 8 billion people down to the size of a sugar cube and you've got the same density of a neutron star, which is pretty much the same density of a uh, nucleus of an atom. So inside atoms, that's how that's how dense they are as well in there as uh, too. Now, that density does some remarkable things. It creates lots of gravity. It creates uh, weirdness inside the neutron star. We don't really know how matter behaves uh, in the depths of a neutron star. We can sort of tell, uh, we have some theories called the equations of state of matter. But, you know, there's, there's all sorts of other theories, like, you know, there's a black hole inside neutron stars or there's something called a quark-gluon plasma. And it all comes back to oh, I want the one density. Of oh, yeah, it sounds fun, don't they? Um, but, yeah, effectively, the density of neutron stars is... Is, is next level insane uh, compared to anything we know about in the universe. Alice, we keep looking at this, and we've touched upon this before, but again, everything is weird and outside our experience. And it does seem to be that the more we learn about the world outside this little planet Earth, the less and less normal what happens here is. <laughs> I think there's a growing disjunction, which it kind of set in with Copernicus about 500 years uh -huh. ago, where we were told that what we saw with our own senses, which is the sun rising, mm -hmm. moving over the sky, setting under the earth, that told us that this is not true. We're actually the ones revolving around the sun. So for the last 500 years, almost everything we discover about the universe shows us that our senses are no longer any good for figuring out what's going on and we have to rely on the mediation of instruments like the James Webb Space Telescope and like all of the telescopes on Earth and things we have out there. So it's kind of becoming harder and harder to just get our heads around it. I mean, even those, as you said before still, like 13 billion years, what does that even mean? Like you can't even think of numbers in, in those kinds of um, quantities. So I think um, 
it's just like how do we put all of this stuff into words? What does density even mean? How do we, like saying what the temperature, I had this interesting discussion with um, uh, a colleague of Rami's and mine, Graziella Caparelli. I was trying to find out what temperature is the space around the Voyager 2 spacecraft. And she kind of said, well, we can't tell. Temperature isn't a thing you can measure out there. It's relational and contextual. So it's kind of even a meaningless thing. I'm pretty sure it ain't warm. I'm pretty sure that is the case out there. But a simple word like density ends up being something that we can use terrestrial comparisons with to try and get our heads around but the more we learn the the less easy it is for human senses to to comprehend the state of this universe that that we all find so fascinating which leads me to play a clip which isn't on the running sheet we played a few weeks ago on the episode with Upali Divasekra this is uh, from an American uh, journalist, who, uh, well, a presenter, who, who went to a Flat Earth conference in, in the US. And it, it, this is about a minute and a half, but I, I think you will love this discussion. If the Earth is flat, where is the sun? It's 93 million miles away? Uh, the, the sun at any given time, and when you say the sun, there is no the sun. Everybody has their own sun. What do you mean? Literally. What do you mean literally? Uh, literally everybody has their own sun. There's a different sun for everybody. What do you mean a Everywhere. different sun? I don't understand that. Like, yeah. you mean you're saying that there's a different sun here in Las Vegas than there is in New York? Uh, you're not looking at the same sun there, correct. So how many suns are there? As many people who are viewing it. So every individual person has their own That's sun? correct. What? That is correct. The sun's no more than 50 miles away at any given time. And it's 50, just, wait, wait, wait. But wait a second. A, but, but airplanes go sky, up in the sky. That's right. And it's like a rainbow. And how come the, the sun doesn't get bigger when you're in an airplane? The closer you move to it, the farther it moves from you. It's like a rainbow. And the sun isn't a thing. Sun, this is going to break me, man. Yeah, this is going to yeah, break the me. The sun is literally not a thing. The, 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 the what? Sun, <laughs> wait a second. Sun, no, it's not like a burning ball of gas or any of that bullshit. What is it? Yeah, it's what, what is the sun then? The, it's what? cold. The sun is cold. The sun is cold. Wow. Wow. I, I mean, <gasps> how do yeah? Oh. How do you deal with what appears to be an increasing distrust of science? That seems to me to fit with the idea that the more science discovers more about the universe, it seems less and less to fit our, uh, you know, personal, natural intuitions and day-to-day -day understandings of the world. Okay, that bloke, that bloke is way past that. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what his day-to-day -day understanding is, but I, the sun is cold and no more than 50 miles away at any time. Uh, I mean, I mean he, he, he has a little bit of a point in that there are, there are many suns out there in terms of like the number of stars out there, but they are very far away and they're not. I don't think that's to what he means. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, uh, that was that. That was next level. But, but you know, um, I think things like that is is why all of those uh, photographs we get from the space telescopes and from satellites, and, and of course these are images. They're based on data, uh, like infrared, which we can't see, and then they're um, 
um, processed, manipulated. Yeah. Actually, not processed. That's the word I want because manipulated says that they're processed. Well, manipulated, yes. Processed in a, <laughs> a, yes, in a scientific way. <laughs> but I think because we can look at those pictures and appreciate them and we can kind of relate them to, uh, you know, things we might see on 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 Earth, like ripples in ponds mm. and the, mm-hmm. the sort of fractal Fibonacci-ness of leaves on a tree. Like this, we can understand the colours and, and the sort of patterns emerging from that randomness in those images with our own eyes and our own human senses. Mm. And I think that's part of the reason why those pictures are so important because they create a connection mm. between the unimaginable distances and scales and our bodies and our eyes. They give us a, a, a pathway to understanding the universe, which makes me think of the famous poem about the Hubble Space Telescope by uh, the US poet Tracy K. Smith, uh, in which she talks about the sensation of, which the James Webb is doing, uh, the sensation of things coming into focus and feeling like you have this this view into the deeper universe and at the end of this this famous poem she says you have the sensation that it's kind of looking back at you you're engaging Mm. in it it's not a a one-way process it's a it's a fantastic Mm. poem it is and i should say its title is my god it's full of stars which uh, many people listening to this now will know as a line from the film 2001 a space odyssey i can't do the whole poem, although I have linked to uh, Tracy K. Smith reading the poem. Uh, it's copyright, people. I, I can't get clearance for this uh, in time. And I've, I've linked to the text of it as well. It's all there. And, uh, Alice, to, to your point, that final line, um, again, about pictures from the, the Hubble telescope saying, so brutal and alive it seemed to comprehend us back. That's a bit like we stare into the abyss, uh, we gaze into the abyss rather, and the abyss gazes back. Well, it's a little scary. <laughs> speaking, speaking of gravity, though, which we sort of were, and I'll, I'll, I'll move on to this now. I know that uh, Rami wanted to talk about the strongest evidence yet of the gravitational wave background. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the big discoveries from this year. It's probably uh, <laughs> well for me personally, probably the biggest announcements. Um, obviously, because I was on the team, but uh, one of the teams around the world that helps sort of provide uh, this new result. But it is a confirmation of, um, or of, of the first steps of a confirmation, I should say, of a type of gravitational waves. So. Uh, like this, like you know, Alice was just talking about the infrared light, and you know we have radio light, and there's visible light that our eyes see. The electromagnetic spectrum is, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different sort of ranges and frequencies and categories of that spectrum. Gravitational waves also come in the spectrum, and in um, 2015, you know, some of the big sort of instruments around the world in America uh, and in Italy uh, called LIGO and Virgo. They detected gravitational waves, but they detected what we call high-frequency gravitational waves, and that's from that's from all, uh, black holes and neutron stars, uh, uh, what we call stellar mass black holes and neutron stars. Now, what we announced in in June 2023 were much lower-frequency gravitational waves. In fact, they're in a nanohertz regime, so they're very, very low. They've got wavelengths that extend light years and light years, and, and they 
they crest about every 10 years. So each of these gravitational waves takes 10 years to pass you. And uh, and they're tiny. They're, they're, they're extremely um, timely in terms of what we can detect. And what generates these is not like stellar mass black holes or neutron stars, but instead the uh, massive, supermassive black holes that exist in the heart of galaxies. And when these galaxies sort of merge and combine and collide with each other over the history of the universe, not like one event, we're talking about every event in the history of the universe of these supermassive black holes colliding and merging, we, they generate these gravitational waves, these lower frequency gravitational waves, and they produce a background hum of these gravitational waves. And we've, we're starting to see the first evidence of that, which is remarkable. I am now picturing that demonstration which showed that mass that demonstration that showed that objects with a mass deform the universe you know you get mm-hmm. the big rubber sheet you get a little heavy ball roll the ball into it and the rubber sheet depresses uh, yep. and that's meant to visualize a thing i think everyone will have seen that if not i'll link to a video of it what i'm now seeing there is something similar where i just get a couple of big rocks throw them together into a pond and that's going to create not just ripples but something quite big except the pond is extremely large because it's the whole universe and by the time we get way out into that pond it's just a little ripple in the background like like throwing a rock into the ocean and measuring it on the other side of the ocean yeah yeah but that's that's it's, we're talking like ocean scales here so um if you look when you look out on a body of water like be it a harbor or a lake or whatever it may be you might see like tiny ripples and they're, they're the sort of high frequency gravitational waves and then if a boat goes past it creates like a wake and that sort of that wake moves toward you and that's like a an event kind of gravitational wave but the kind of gravitational waves we're talking about here are the tides the actual slowly rise and fall of the entire ah. ocean it's like a very long-term mm. thing and it's a very very small thing that we can detect but effectively the entire universe the fabric of the cosmos is, cosmos is shaking and that's what we're actually looking at here so it's a, a very long-term effect uh you need a lot of long-term data to find this stuff which is why we had 30 years of data before we can even get to these first kind of detections um yeah, it's really interesting. I think, I think the next five, ten years are going to really reveal a lot about uh, this gravitational wave regime. Rami, I have to ask you, how did it? What did it feel like to be part of a discovery like that? Great question. Um, kind of fun, amazing, but at the time it was scary and intense, mm-hmm. and things just happened so quickly. Like we we always had a plan to go live with it by, let's say, I think it was June. Um, actually, we might have wanted to go live a little bit early, but obviously things get delayed. But during the run up. Because uh, there's multiple teams around the world, and this is this is great science because there's multiple teams around the world, and we've all got our own data sets. Uh, we should all be seeing the same results, and so we had to cross check and cross reference each other's work to make sure that we weren't seeing a, you know, something that one of the teams was creating and other teams weren't creating or interference or whatever it may have been. And so the, the wonderful part was that we can do that cross verification, but it was a lot of work and it took a lot of people's time and effort to get to that point. Um, and these and these first detections are. Are unique because, like, I mean, not every team has the exact same value. We we measure, we all measure, the, we all measure the signal, but we all measure it at, at different levels, and so that provides some interesting insights as well into maybe some telescopes are more sensitive than others because they have more pulsars to use when they're doing these measurements, or uh, or maybe there's something going on in the universe that's anastropic. So you know, it could be stronger in one part of the universe versus another part of the universe. So there's a whole bunch of extra science that comes out of it now and into the future, but. 
the process itself was fun, exhilarating, tiring, and mm-hmm. uh, and also uh, captivating. I mean, I'm I'm new to science, so this was uh, this is this is a baptism of fire in a way uh, to feel part of. Amazing. I I am also imagining the frustration of trying to see the universe from just the one planet. It's a bit like in the great age of the European explorers of trying to understand the entire world without leaving Portsmouth. Uh, you know, it's... Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, we saw what that was like when they came back with pictures of dolphins and, and, and giraffes yeah. Yeah. and dragons yeah. and things and no one, no one knew what was going on. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, 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 we are we are to get to make these detections. We are using pulsars across the galaxy itself. So we are using a uh, we are sort of looking at the universe with a galactic scale detector, I should say. Um, but we do have to transform that data into Earth, like it's coming back into Earth and transform it to like a an Earth based result. So um, we've got to take in the things like you know the Earth going around the Sun. Uh, Jupiter going around the sun because that creates a little bit of a wobble of the sun. Like all, Jupiter's all the, like, always been a problem. We should <laughs> <laughs> friend, friend and foe in one. That's true. Um, <laughs> so there's a there's a lot, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we had to consider, which was uh, again some really really big big kind of science. <laughs> I'm trying to remember now a short story, science fiction short story, where the aliens do come and they they make an offer for Jupiter. And, and they give Earth all of this technology and other stuff uh, to say, look, we, we just want the rights to Jupiter. And the rights would have put an advertising slogan on the side of it for oh. passing traffic. That sounds like either there is a story called By Jupiter and it's either it is Robert by Jupiter. A, uh-huh, a Heinlein, I think, or Asimov, one of those two, yeah. It's By Jupiter, B-U-Y Jupiter, and it is Isaac Asimov. Uh-huh. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, Ju- oh, Ju- 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 Jupiter is a funny character. Um, I'm, I'm sure Alice knows him, but from uh, University of South Queensland, Professor John T. Horner actually writes a lot about uh, Jupiter being friend or foe because um, Jupiter has protected us a lot in the past in, t- in that it takes a lot of impacts from comets and other bodies, but it also throws them our way every now and then. And so, you know, it can actually cause uh, some quite risky situations for Earth. Do you know, I found out recently I was doing a bit of research on how far, so like we get meteorites from the moon and Mars and maybe other planets, but we can't really tell because we've got nothing to compare them with. And I thought, how far might bits of Earth have reached into the Mm. solar system? Mm. And Mm. some work on, you know, the massive um, meteor that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs probably in 66 million years ago. It was yep, big yep. enough one, to... One, the big to, crater is in... In um, Mexico. Chicxula. Yeah, yeah Chicxula. That one. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. So it would have thrown bits of Earth off with enough energy that they could have reached the moons of Jupiter. So there might be mm. bits of Earth wow. on Jupiter's moons. Isn't that extraordinary? They're mm. going to send us a fine for littering, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> We do have to move on, but I will just wrap that by saying that slow tides of the universe over a 10-year period, that's just the turtle breathing in and out. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's a great analogy. So, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty much that same, that same speed and that same sort of level as well. So, yeah, absolutely.
I'd like to finish this episode, Alison Rummy, by by asking, was any of this a good idea though? We we we've talked, oh, there's some pretty pictures. You know, we're we're gonna have mining magnates and awful people whose names we've already said and and friends and competitors digging up the moon. I said I would play another thing that will well, it annoys me. Uh, this is this is from a, a, a another YouTube uh, space channel uh, back in 2016, I think it was. We've always looked to the stars. They guide us, give us comfort, help us find our way. We see ourselves out there. When we look up, it inspires us. And we long for something we don't yet know. We yearn to go there. So, we venture forth. And he goes on like that for quite some time to, to promote the channel. Uh, but looking back at the bigger picture, and I will say this, when I did find that clip and some other things, I was looking for things on YouTube to, to include, I found these things all clustered together. From NASA, a video called Artemis, We Are Focused. Another one from NASA, We Are Going. Another one from NASA, We Are NASA. And then from Sky News, poverty could push UK back to Victorian era of social divides. And I thought, there we are. And that's that's always the big argument, isn't it? When we build the James Watt Space Telescope or the Large Hadron Collider or the uh, whatever it might be, mm. nuclear submarines, defence projects, uh, at least that's here on Earth, you know, mm. uh, fireworks at New Year's Eve. I'll stop listing the things that annoy me. Alice, you've had some thoughts on this recently. I have been thinking about this still because earlier in the year it came to my attention that 2023 was the 60th anniversary of a very famous essay about space by the philosopher Hannah Arendt. Hmm. And she's. this is interesting because people are... Um, she she was a political theorist. Uh, she did a lot of work on totalitarian states. She very famously reported on the trial of Adolf Eichmann, uh, who the the sort of architect of the final solution. So there's all of this stuff about Nazi genocide and violence, which is part of other current debates we won't get into. Um, so that was sort of her main um, field of theorising. But in 1963, she was asked by the Encyclopaedia Britannica to write an essay responding to the question, has the conquest of space increased or diminished man's sick stature? <laughs> and there were six other, uh, four other people also asked to write an essay, Aldous Huxley, who people will know as the author of Brave New World, mm-hmm. uh, a historian and a, a planetary scientist who aren't very well known today, and a theologian, Paul Tillich, and they all produced. So this is this is sixty years ago, so only six years after Sputnik One was launched, and they're talking, they're thinking about 
the longer term future of humanity in relation to what's happening in space. I suppose one thing to say is the whole language around the conquest of space isn't used so much anymore. Conquest, yeah. It still is. It's still sort of part of that. You'll still see it in news headlines, you know, man and conquest and all this kind of stuff, this this whole idea of human technology mastering nature, uh, which is, you know, sort of got a very colonial kind of cast to it as well. Mm. Uh, so Hannah Arendt and Aldous Huxley kind of said, you know, the idea Let's look at what the universe is. So the idea that you can conquer it in any way is just kind of ridiculous. Mm. So fortunately that kind of language isn't so common anymore, but it still kind of is, that idea that sending these missions out to space uh, is about, you know, gaining new territories, demonstrating uh, our ascendance over nature, blah, blah, blah. That idea is still kind of out there. There was another thing about these writings that really struck me as well. So Hannah Arendt basically kind of says, well, look, you know, there's all this, as you were just saying, you know, we are going, we're going to space, we're going out there, we're going to the moon again, we're going to Mars, rah, rah, rah. She points out that there is a limit to how far humans can actually expand into space. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe at some point we'll get to the, we'll send humans to the edges of robots are fine. We can send robots anywhere, um, but we can't send them to other uh, solar systems at this point in time within our human lifetimes. So even if we do that, we're not going to see it. She says, what's going to happen when we reach that limit? What's going to happen to this whole notion that the whole universe is ours for the taking? And she says when we get to that point, we'll be turning back inwards to earth to kind of look for the meaning of our existence. Mm. And what will that be like? And I think this is a really interesting question, which if we frame it in that way of a failed conquest, obviously is pretty negative. But if we try and move away from that kind of language, I think it might give us some other avenues for kind of understanding what it is even is we're doing out there. Mm. So it's worth having a read of this essay. Like it's not, I don't find it easygoing. Like I find it quite a difficult thing to read. And every time I think I've kind of pinned down her meaning, I'll have a look at it again and think, oh, actually what she means is the opposite of what I thought she meant like three days ago. So it's kind of, it's kind of a tricky thing to read. But she's taking this very long-term view from the vantage point of six of 60 years ago, and I think it's still really relevant. So all this rah-rah, let's go to other planets, let's become a multi-planetary species, etc., etc. you know, this there's a limit to how much of this we can do, and if we take it to that limit, what have we actually gained? I think the main thing is knowledge of the of the universe, the kind of stuff Rami is doing. So I'm very happy with the scientific aspects of this but the capitalist profit making aspects of this all of that stuff like are we gonna get to those limits and reflect back you know it's like the 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 limits to growth club of rome 1976 report we'll get to these limits and what then like will we put ourselves in any kind of position 
to culturally adapt to focusing back on earth and if you kind of look at what's going on around us right now you'd have to say not really so that's my kind of big picture thought mm. yeah it's it's, it's interesting because like i there is, as, as you, you framed it perfectly, Alice, there is like the, the wonderful aspect of science in terms of looking out there or sending robots out there or building machines or instruments to to go out and, and observe the science and understand the universe. And that teaches a little bit about ourselves as well. And I also think that there is merit in terms of discovery and curiosity. They, those are commodities that we can also build on in things like inspiration for future generations here on Earth, which can then lead to other things like better better housing or whatever, better computers, whatever it may be, right? But in terms of actual travel and colonization, or for lack of a better word, uh, of these other places beyond Earth, it's 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 a fast dream, to be honest. Like it's the closest planets to us, let's say Venus, is un, is really hard to live on because it's you know four hundred seventy six degrees Celsius and you'll melt on it. Mars is the next stop beyond the Moon. Again, it's not hospitable for humans. We don't even have ways to work out how time works on Mars, for example. Uh, and then beyond that is, you know, the moons of Jupiter. And I think that's like the next 500 years, that's the limit of what we'll get to unless technology, such propulsion technology, does improve rapidly in the next 500 years. And it may, who knows. Um, but it's humans, we don't know how to deal with space. We're not meant for space. We're, we're built on this spaceship called Earth and, and, and we have a symbiotic relationship with this, with this beautiful spaceship that we have that has given us all that we need. Um, and it's kind of hard to try and start again uh, by jumping ahead into it without evolving through it on another place. So I think that's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pipe dream by, as you said, the Alice capitalists who are going, we should be a multi-planetary species when, you know, we, why don't we just fix the problems here on Earth first? And yet if you have trains going faster than 30 miles an hour, women will faint and their uteruses will fall out and horses will die in the streets and and the world will implode. So, you know. Look, it was all downhill from when they introduced bicycles still. I think we all yes, know that. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and on that note, uh, I think we all need to hop on our bikes because that's that's gone past the hour and uh, I don't want to keep you up on a Saturday. Thank you both to the wonderful Dr. Alice Gorman. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And astrophysicist Rami Mandau. Thank you, sir. Thank you still. It's always fun having a chat with you. I was struck by how chatting with Alice and Rami we go from really tiny little details like trying to open up the sample container on a Cirrus Rex and having to design a special screwdriver to do that little thing to get 50 grams of stuff out of it. And then zooming back to the enormous picture about, well, within 500 years, will we be able to explore the beyond the solar system or not? 500 years ago... You know, well, yeah, look where we were. Bit different. So who knows? Uh, we also were going to talk about, but didn't, a survey of Australia's attitudes uh, to space and space sciences. So I have linked to that, number 36, on your hymn sheet on the podcast website. Um, I found that quite interesting. Anyway, that's that's it for now. 
Yes, indeed, that is uh, all the edict for now. Please go to the podcast website. Uh, please tell your friends. Please consider supporting us at the 9pmedict.com slash tip. The next episode will be next week with Snarky Platypus. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. And also, uh, Merry Christmas. Merry other seasonal things. I'll see you again before the new year next week. What a year, hey? What a year. We'll take a look at that then. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.